Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to welcome co-host, regular co-host for the umpteenth time, Russell Hanby. Welcome to Viewpoints for the umpteenth time, Russell Hanby. Thanks, Henry. Umpteenth. Remember we profiled that word some time ago as one of those odd words that means everything or a lot, and yet where did it come from? Remember you did that? No, I can't remember where it came from. Can no, you? No, I can't remember now. I can look it up again if you like for next week, perhaps. That would be good. See if you could. Umpteenth, there's lots of them. It reminds me of a word, silly. Uh, the word silly, uh, once upon a time in Old English, meant empty, and it usually referred to silly buckets. And it's interesting how today the word silly, you'd never use it in terms of a bucket, but the word silly talks about certain behaviours that you'd probably prefer not to engage in if you had half a chance. That's right. So the words actually morph into different meanings sometimes, don't they? And into current usage. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Anyway, we'll get onto that. But we've got other things to talk about in what's making news. The age, Russell, this week, philosophy is out in a call to boost teaching degrees. Aspiring teachers would spend less time learning about history and philosophy of education and more on practical skills needed to handle a classroom under plans to overhaul teaching degrees. And of course, education is my field and has been yours too for a long time, uh, even though you're not there anymore. Tell us a bit about this one. Well, an expert panel has uh, proposed tighter standards for teaching degrees. And this is more about the the quality of the teaching courses. Yep. Uh, that, and they hope that uh, by tightening the standards, it'll make more effective teaching and classroom management practices. In other words, the skills of teaching. Now, the panel uh, wants teaching courses to disclose dropout rates, how many... Uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds and how many feel prepared to teach. And they want this published. Uh, panel Chair Mark Scott, of the Vice-Chancellor of the Sydney University, said that teaching degrees should focus on evidence-based teaching strategies, that is, the skills to succeed. Now, he called for greater consistency between state accreditation as uh, for as happens for medicine and nursing. In fact, there are four categories to measure teaching courses or the quality of one is diversity and quality of the students. Two, the proportion who drop out. Three, the perceived preparedness to teach. And four, the employment outcomes of the recent graduates. And they want it to be made a, a public for what they call accountability and to perhaps help people make choices about which, uh, which institution. And uh, they would then, along with that, would become more money, apparently, to the greatest achieving uh, institutions and those criteria. Mm, look, it's an interesting one. One of the ways philosophy out in call to boost teaching degrees, just let's touch on that one for a moment. Aspiring teachers would spend less time learning about the history and philosophy of education and more on practical skills needed to handle a classroom under plans to overhaul teaching degrees. The key thing there is um, not the eradication of uh, the the philosophy of education and history of it, uh, but perhaps rejigging the balance because one thing teachers, I think, should always retain is that uh, depth and breadth about education per se and the philosophy because uh, otherwise you become 
more of a, an artisan. You become a craftsman. You don't become a creator in the sense of, and there is the creative side of teaching, um, and and that goes down to an understanding of the history of education uh, and the philosophy of education because they're always uh, contestable uh, things about the, the profession that if we're not familiar with those, uh, we go there, we teach, and, and that's very important. And I think there's a great case to say there should be more emphasis on the practicalities. But at the same time, we want minds that have a more global perspective on education because that also enables you to be a bit more innovative and creative in the in the global sense of how you teach and learn. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, probably it's a good, like we don't, the inference is we throw out the history or comparative education studies and philosophy and just teach how classroom management, I guess. Well, um, probably uh, that would be a silly idea to throw it out, as you say, to give that wider breadth of knowledge. But uh, I guess they could perhaps increase more. There seems to be a bit of a, 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 a missing, what's missing is perhaps the practicality of classroom mm. teaching in the degrees. Do you think that? apart from, say, teaching rounds or whatever? Yeah, well, look, the pandemic certainly hit hard on the practical studies. A lot of students that are graduating now, Russell, just haven't had the chance to get out in the classroom, um, you know, practice their, their teaching skills, learn from the, the senior teachers that uh, are taking them on teaching rounds. And, uh, of course, in their courses, and we do hear that from students from time to time, that the balance is wrong and there's subjects there which might be intrinsically interesting but don't add value to an important part of their work which is behaviour management, conflict resolution, dealing with parents, uh, yeah, working in right, teams. Yeah. Th that's all, that's all, understanding pedagogy. Those things are very important and all of those things are covered but clearly perhaps um, the pandemic's made it worse and perhaps they were never balanced uh, rightly in the first place but I do think you do need you do need some of everything in there, but yes, you do need those practical skills so when you get into the classroom on day one, um, you're not sort of floundering in having those kids there and you've got to teach <laughs> them and know what to do and how to do yeah. it. And then when you get a parent coming up at the end of the day asking you some challenging questions, not knowing what to say. So, look, it's an interesting one and I think it's probably it's a good one as long as the headline doesn't quite sum it up. Philosophy out. I think philosophy uh, perhaps diminished but not out in the call to teaching, boost teaching degrees would be one. I think their four criteria are also interesting, aren't they? Yes, they are. So uh, be interested to know what comes of it all, won't you? And the second and the next item, which we're probably about to start, is sort of related, isn't it? Yes. Um, do you want to talk about it? Yes, raising the grade. Uh, aspiring teachers would have to meet higher standards and focus more on reading and maths under the biggest shake-up of education degrees in decades. And it does very much go hand-in-hand hand with the first item. The first item is more about the quality of the teaching courses, and this is about the actual teachers themselves or the, the students. Um, it's a national task force is proposing an 8R target of 80 much higher for teaching students. Uh, some currently score as low as in the 40s. Now, um, there's been concerns about the dire standard of many applicants. And uh, another suggestion is that mid-career workers are proposed to have a $20,000 incentive uh, with as little as 16 months courses. These are people who perhaps embarked on other careers um, and the older ones 
are able to work while studying. In other words, they're going to cut back the time of teacher training for, for these workers because of the shortage of teachers, I guess. And the public uh, reporting of the course quality, which is like we just talked about, um, means that will cost about $800 million in federal funding. Interesting, though, there's no recommendation to raise teacher salaries in this article. Uh, no, um, there are not, um, but one would think that should follow. <laughs> uh, I think one of the th- one of the many things uh, that is holding our profession back is is the pay. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't get away from the fact that uh, the pay rates to attract people to professions. Um, If you get a university degree, you have more options uh, depending on the degree and the degree to which you are successful in it. Uh, And uh, teachers shouldn't uh, have different aspirations for their careers, uh, you know, and their livelihoods as other people. And so if we're going to raise the standards, which I I, I certainly support as a member of the expert panel that's putting this out. uh, Oh, you're part of it. You're on that panel, are you? Yes, I'm part of that expert panel, um, with uh, along with Professor Scott and Parsi Salberg, and uh, I think the executive officer from the um, independent schools. I think that it goes hand in hand that if we're going to raise the standard of requirement for people and get better people with better outcomes, then they should be remunerated for that. Um, but yes, we do need. Um, I've always subscribed to the view, Russell, that. Um, when we, as teachers, uh, encourage students to do their very best, it's to give themselves the best options in careers and by extension, the better educated society that we have, the better the country will will be. And obviously we want the best people choosing teaching uh, and it's no surprise over recent years that um, not all the best students in terms of their their ATAR scores want to go in teaching and I don't subscribe to the view that the ATAR is irrelevant to teaching yet it's relevant to a lot of other occupations. We, Those exams do tell us something and some of that has to be positive. So we do want more higher ATAR people along with all those soft skills that you need to have as well and I think uh, uh, getting to a blend of how you get into a university course in terms of interviews, portfolios and ATAR scores would be a better system. Do you think the higher score will attract more or less people uh, into the profession unless they're paid more? No, I don't think it will. I think two things have to happen. And at the moment, we're in a bit of a teacher crisis and principal crisis. People don't want to get in the profession. If they do, they don't stay long. That's what the stats, too many of them. And people don't want leadership. And I think there's a combination of things there. Um, Workload, community pressure, um, in many instances, media coverage of the profession. Uh, As a profession, it's looked down on too much. So it's not really too uh, exciting for a young kid to say well I want to be a teacher and then get um, too often a oh why do you want to be a teacher attitude from the community you want to be proud of your profession and of course the other one is remuneration you know yes. um, you can't you can't you can't go off at young people who want to maximize their earnings in life and uh, to say it's a calling you know, <laughs> I think <laughs> when you're on contracts and KPIs and, 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 and it's hard work teaching, very rewarding but hard work, um, I think you do need to have higher remuneration. Now, you were a teacher a while ago. Did, what do you think would be good ways of uplifting the uh, 
status and uh, the quality of the teaching profession. Yes, well, as you say, it has turned like it's in recent uh, months or years, we've had more of this uh, problems with uh, teacher assaults and uh, both verbal and physical. And uh, there was that classic one this week, which was a bit over the top in Maitland and New South Wales, which is probably the extreme end of all that. But uh, the whole... uh, authority or lack of the, the respect for authority seems to have crept in a lot. I don't know how we get that back in a hurry, do you? No, no, no. It's a long-term It's a long-term thing, just like solving the issues that we're being confronted with right now um, won't be solved uh, in five minutes either. Now, we need to take a short break. Russell, before we do the second half of the program, can you, can you hold the line? Yes, I can. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosek. In the middle of a discussion on what's making news with regular co-host Russell Hanby. Welcome, Russ. Thanks, Henry. Now, this is an interesting one in the age. US regulator tells Canberra to ban TikTok, and they're telling them to ban TikTok for reasons other than which you might initially think. One of the US uh, RVA's top technology regulators has urged Australia to ban TikTok in its current form, arguing the wildly popular Chinese-owned app is a sophisticated surveillance tool that poses a uniquely troubling national security threat. To what extent do you reckon that's uh, valid on what we've got in the news release versus paranoia, Russell? Well, you sort of think, gee, this is uh, pretty bad, and whether you wonder if it is a scare tactic more as much as anything, but... Mm. uh, uh, anyway, the uh, the federal government has banned TikTok, TikTok on government-provided devices, uh, but the uh, United States Federal Communications Commissioner Brendan Carr says that that's not uh, not far enough. The Biden administration has warned tic- that TikTok faces a total ban unless its US owner ByteDance, which is based in Beijing, sells. In other words, drops it completely. The TikTok. Now, Carr says that TikTok functions as a sophisticated surveillance tool that harvests extensive amounts of personal and sensitive data. And even in its own disclosure, TikTok says it can collect search and browsing histories, face prints and voice prints, location data, messages, images, and videos stored on devices, clipboard, clipboards. And Carr is concerned that Beijing had access to all TikTok user data and that uh, the owner, ByteDance, spied on journalists. So there's some fairly alarming claims made there, isn't there? Yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning that Lee Hunter, TikTok's general manager for Australia and New Zealand, he disputed Carr's claims, saying, quote, there is no evidence to suggest that TikTok in any way poses a security risk to Australia. Australia's millions of TikTok users can be confident that their data is safe with us, he said. And it's disappointing that we continue to be dragged into the wider geopolitical debate, apparently because of our country of origin. So that's the rebuttal by the general manager for Australia and New Zealand. It still leaves us with an interesting uh, set of thoughts, doesn't it? Yes, whether we should uh, investigate it more fully or 
But then Home, our Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, said that there was no ban planned of the app and then there are 7 million monthly users in Australia. So uh, on one hand, you hear from America, oh, it's bad news, and the next thing, oh, we're going along, it's uh, not too bad at all, apparently. Mm. Yeah, look, there's a fine balance between paranoia and reality at times, <laughs> Russell, and uh, I mean, I don't know, I'm not in a position to comment one way or the other, I'm no expert on it, um, and the geopolitical issue at the moment, what we do know is the fact is that um, relationships between the US and China aren't exactly at their peak at the moment, and uh, and at the same time, um, platforms such as TikTok are very popular and at times, um, on another issue, I think used by children under the age of 13, we see too much of that. This is a different issue related to the same platform and uh, they leave themselves open to uh, getting themselves into trouble online through their use of TikTok if it's unsupervised by their parents and they shouldn't be using it under the age of 13. No, that's true, yeah. So it's a, it's a bit of a concern in the whole thing, isn't it, in that social media business? Yeah, absolutely, and one that I think we'll uh, watch this space would be a, a great uh, thing to do on that particular topic, which we'll do. Russell, you're a mushroom man, aren't you? Well, I've got a few mushroom <laughs> CDs in the past. Yeah, the, the, the Trail Mushroom, the trailblazing Australian music company and home to Kylie Minogue, Jimmy Barnes, Paul Kelly, Hunters and Collectors, Skyhooks, and many, many more will celebrate its 50th anniversary with an all-star mega concert in November. And uh, the Mushroom Records founder, Michael Godinsky, as we know, died in 2021. Yep. And his son, Matt, is now the CEO. And they've got several things planned. Uh, there's this blockbuster Mushroom 50 concert in November. There's a feature documentary about Michael Godinsky going to screen in cinemas nationally. Uh, some of the current world's best artists are going to sing reimagined classics, like for the churches under the Milky Way. That will be done by the contemporary group Temper Trap and uh, Mushroom Merchandise, of course, on sale. And the aim is to showcase the past and history of the company as much as the future. And it's supported by mushroom artists, uh, particularly like Jimmy Barnes and Mark Seymour and all those others we named. And, in fact, Mushroom employs 250 people and consists of 25 companies, including Frontier Touring, which uh, held a very popular and large Billy Joel and Ed Sheeran concerts recently at the MCG. So 50 years, I remember when it started, Mushroom, actually. Yeah, look, it's been there, I remember, way back in, uh, what, about 1960? 70 somewhere? Yeah, it would be the early 70s, yeah. And, oh no, they've been an iconic uh, organisation and uh, there's an awful lot of highly talented people, a lot of nostalgic uh, memories there. I know Hunters and Collectors, Mark Seymour, yes, uh, Jimmy Barnes, he's been there forever and a day with Cole Chisel and Jimmy Barnes and there's so, so many more. And uh, we've all played their records when we've been... uh, running our programs, haven't we, Russ? Yeah, yeah, they've really supported the artists, like Old 55, this is just another one I can think of, and there's heaps more, isn't there? There's a couple not that they didn't mention there. Um, One is uh, Johnny Farnham. I don't know that he was on Mushroom, but Johnny Farnham's not mentioned. And the other one um, that's not mentioned there that springs to mind is LRB. I'm not saying they were with Mushroom, but they're two very, very um, iconic, uh, iconic uh, singers and bands that we had, aren't they? Remember those two? Yes. 
Yeah, maybe they weren't with Mushroom, but uh, anyway, they've done a lot for the uh, oh, music absolutely. industry, haven't they? Yes, yeah. and it'll be a concert to be uh, looking out for in uh, November when they firm up the actual details and the ticketing. Russell, what's making uh, Odd Spot news? Tell us what that is. Right. Well, a 29-year-old woman has, who poses a teenage student, she's 29, at a New Jersey high school, wanted to relive her past, the lawyer <laughs> says. <laughs> Haya Yong Shin uh, allegedly forged a birth certificate to enrol as a 16-year-old and attend classes. She wanted to return to an environment that she looks back on fondly, according to the lawyer. Now, she was found out after four days, one that she lasted that long, uh, and pleaded not guilty to providing a false government document and hindering her prosecution. So uh, she really went to a lot of trouble to uh, go back to school. Yes, not many of them do. Some, a lot of them, will go to a lot of trouble to get out of school. We've got, <laughs> we've got, uh, we've got the flip side of what uh, we would expect. Uh, interesting story, great on spot, Russell. You have a great weekend, and um, we'll catch up at the same time next week. Right, eh? We'll look forward to it. That was Russell Hanby, and what's making news, listeners? Take care.